Well, good morning again, everyone. We're going to take a little break, just a one Sunday break from Matthew. We were in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to actually go over to Luke chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 5 to 8. You don't, you don't need to quite turn there yet, but that's what we're going to look at, a, a passage that speaks about prayer. And I'm excited this morning to, to bring you this message about the certainty of answered prayer. The certainty of answered prayer. There, you know, there's so many promises in God's word that encourage us to pray. And time and time again, God answers the prayers of his people. In fact, God delights in answering our prayers. He loves to accomplish his purposes through us. He loves to use us to bring about his goals and his desires, and he, he graciously includes us in what he's doing in the world. And prayer is one of the ways that he does that, that he's able to use us to accomplish what he wants to do. Prayer is one of the greatest privileges in the Christian life. It's our fellowship with God, our interacting with God. In prayer, we have access to God. In prayer, we ask God to accomplish his work and meet our needs. And as God answers those prayers, we see him working in the world. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, it talks about prayer as a, a foundational means of standing against the schemes of the enemy, our spiritual enemies in the heavenly places. Through prayer, we are protected by God. And the way to stand, according to Ephesians 6, 18 and 19, is praying with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit and by watching for one another with all perseverance and petition. Prayer, according to Hebrews 4, 16, is the means of receiving mercy and finding grace to help us in times of need. In Psalm 50 and verse 15, God tells us to call on him in the day of trouble. And then he says, I will rescue you and you will honor me. So prayer is a means by which God rescues us and through which God is going to be glorified in our lives. Answered prayer glorifies God because it shows that he has done it and that it's not us ourselves who have accomplished anything. Jesus says, ask whatever you, uh, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's John 14, 13, and 14. Asking in Jesus' name means asking something for his sake. It means asking something that's consistent with who he is, asking something for his honor and glory. And if we ask that way, Jesus says he will do it so that the Father will be glorified. Prayer glorifies God and God answers prayer. But God doesn't just want us to pray. He wants us to pray according to his will. And he doesn't just want us to pray according to his will, but he wants us to believe that he will answer our prayers. He wants us to trust him and expect, even eagerly expect, that he will answer our prayers. 
And so he asks us to believe and he promises over and over again in his word that he will grant us the things that we request of him. Because it glorifies God when we trust him. It glorifies God when we trust him. It shows the goodness and the greatness of God when we come to him trusting that he will grant us the things that we ask of him. What demonstrates God's goodness more? For him to answer the prayers of his people who aren't sure if he'll really hear them. Or for him to answer the prayers of his people who know him and come to him with confidence. And I think it's definitely the latter. We're to be people who trust God and come to him with confidence, believing what he has said in his word that he will answer our prayers. Now, I'm not talking here about us asking whatever we want. James says that we ask and we don't receive because we ask with wrong motives. And we ask not in Jesus' name, but really in our name, if we could put it that way, to spend it on our pleasures. And James says if we ask in that way, God will not hear or answer our prayer. But when we ask whatever it is in Jesus' name for his sake, we bring more glory to God when we trust him and expect him to answer. And so today, today I want to I wanna help us through the word of God to trust God for answered prayer by focusing on a passage maybe that you might not expect. You know, if I asked, I, I, I'm sure if I asked a hundred people about what, what's their favorite passage on prayer, I would be very surprised if anyone would mention these verses in Luke 5 to 8. And yet what a promise we have in our text today. When his disciples asked him to teach them how to pray in Luke 11, Jesus spent four verses instructing them, and we're going to read that text in a minute, but Jesus spends four verses instructing them on what to pray, and then he spends nine verses teaching them to believe that God would surely answer such a prayer. And so part of how to pray involves learning to expect God to answer our prayers. In other words, Jesus says, pray like this and then believe that God will answer such a prayer. The passage I want to take you to today will teach us what kind of answer we should expect to the disciples' prayer or to prayer in Jesus' name. What will be God's response to such a prayer? What should we expect when we pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray? And so if you would, again, if you're not there yet, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. And I want to read the, the verses. Now, if you, if you walked in this morning and you got one of these outlines, you'll notice that I gave my own little translation of Luke uh, 11, 5 to 8 for you, but we're just going to read out of the ESV for now. But at, at, a, at a future point here, I think it's going to be helpful for you to have one of these. So if you don't have one of these, I think there's probably some on the back table if you wanted to sneak and grab one. But uh, let's just read from the ESV, Luke 11, we'll read verses 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, 
Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So as I said, today we're going to focus on verses five to eight. And this is a parable that teaches us to expect God's answer, or at least that's what I hope that I'll be able to show as we go through this passage. This parable, much like the illustration in verses 11 to 13 about, you know, giving your son a fish instead of a serpent and so forth, this illustration, this parable just is very much like the illustration, teaches that answers to our prayers are ridiculously certain. And that's what I called this sermon, ridiculously certain. And to see this, I want to work through our text under three headings. First, we're going to see what I called the supposition in the, um, in verse 5, in the New American Standard Bible anyways, um, in the New American Standard Bible, it translates it this way. Then he said to them, suppose one of your, one of you has a friend. And really this whole thing is a question. We'll get to that. But I I called this the supposition. Jesus is kind of presenting a a hypothetical situation for us to think about. And then secondly, in verse eight, we're going to see the assertion. Jesus says, I tell you, uh, I tell you. And then he's going to tell us the, the answer to the parable, what he's talking about. Then thirdly, we'll see the application and we're going to kind of look through verses nine and 10 and even 11 to 13 a little bit and, and kind of hopefully drive the teaching of this parable home. So again, the supposition, the assertion, and then thirdly, the application. So here we go. Number one, the supposition verses five to seven. Immediately after teaching the disciples prayer in verses one to four, Jesus continues with this parable and he begins by asking his disciples to suppose. And he wants them to enter into this little story and imagine the scenario that he paints. And so we're going to have to kind of enter into this little story right now and imagine this scenario ourselves. And actually, in the original Greek, the the whole thing from verse 5 to the end of verse 7 is a question that, that kind of enters you into the story. It's really a long question and by asking a question, it, it really draws us into the story and into the scene that Jesus paints for us in these verses. 
Now, the New American Standard Bible and some other translations kind of smooth this question into English by removing the question and adding, like the New American Standard, the word suppose, but a a literal translation like the one that I gave you would, would be, who from among you having a friend will go to him and so forth. And so there's this who from among you question that continues all the way to the end of verse 7. So we want to enter into this story now and imagine the situation from the ancient Near Eastern perspective. And we want to kind of strap on our sandals and, and picture this through the eyes of the disciples. And so I want you to imagine that you are a disciple of Christ and you live in a small peasant community in ancient Israel. Community is probably a, a key word here because we're, we're no longer in the suburbia of our, of our culture and our land. There's, there's, there's no cars. There's no, um, garages. Nobody drives into their garage and never comes out again. We are a community and we all kind of live together largely out in the open. You know, here in our culture, we're, we're more likely to see our neighbor, at, especially in the winter, at the grocery store than at home. Uh, but this whole North American privacy and separation from our neighbors, that's gone right now. We live in a community with our neighbors. And hospitality for the ancient Near Eastern people is not a burden. It's really a delight. It's a sacred duty in the ancient Near East. There's not many hotels. There's not many inns. And, and, and those are typically, at least in that culture, a shady kind of places anyway. And so you wouldn't want any godly visiting friends to go to an inn or a hotel. And the whole village then sees it as our duty to welcome visitors. It's, it's a, it's a village duty to welcome visitors into our community. Hospitality is a community affair. And in a sense, there's no private visitors that come to town. Any visitor is our visitor. If I had a guest at at our place, the whole village had a guest. And and the whole village saw it as their responsibility to ensure that that guest was well taken care of, even though it's my guest. My guest is your guest. Your guest is my guest. And visitors were greeted with a uh, you have honored our village for visiting today. Meal prep was also a community affair. Bread was baked every couple of days to keep it fresh, and it was often baked in an outdoor oven, and often those ovens were a community oven that, that anyone from the community could use. Everyone knew everyone and everyone knew which families baked bread that day. You would, you would know, you know, who baked bread? Who's got bread? Well, Martha was making bread this afternoon. And so everyone would know that Martha had, had freshly baked bread and that other family had baked bread as well. And it, it wasn't considered at all intrusive like, like we might. It wasn't considered at all intrusive to kind of keep tabs on what everyone was eating and what everyone was doing and what they were up to. And in some ways, um, it's kind of maybe the picture of, of how we do it when we go camping. I don't, I don't know about, how, about you guys, but when you're camping, you're kind of in that kind of community setting and it's not as inappropriate to just kind of pop by and, and, uh, peek on what somebody's cooking. You know, oh, what do you got there? Oh, you got some sausages there. That's looking good. You know, it's just kind of normal how we do it when we go camping. Well, that's kind of the, the whole feel of the ancient Near Eastern lifestyle. 
You know, when we're camping, it, it's not, it's not as rude. And maybe, maybe you guys are even just a little bit more than, than, than me, just kind of fine with just kind of popping by and having a cup of coffee and seeing what you guys are up to or whatever. Um, you know, anyways, this is kind of the, the camping mentality. So verse five, suppose one of you has a friend or who from among you that has a friend? Hospitality and, and community was the norm, but, but that would even go further as we think about this. That would even go further among friends. Friends are willing to help friends. You know, what does it even mean that someone is your friend if that person isn't willing to help you in a difficult situation? So suppose you go to one such friend at midnight and you say to him, lend me three loaves. And the reason for the lateness of this visit is in verse 6, for a friend of mine has come to me from the road and I have nothing to set before him. So a friend has come this friend's on a journey and, and I have nothing to set before him. And, and, and the idea here now is this is an emergency situation. Maybe it doesn't sound that critical to us, but we've really got an emergency on our hands. You know, I think we have a little bit of an idea about what this is about in, in our culture, in our community. But if, if someone shows up at, at, at my house or at your house at midnight you know, at least in my, you know, just I'll just be honest. If you show up at my house at midnight, you're probably not getting a midnight snack. Like, you know, I, like unless there's some kind of a really serious situation, I, I'm not going to love it that you came over at midnight. Now, as pastor, if you have a problem and you need help, you come over at midnight and we're going to do whatever we can now. But but that's just just typically speaking, that's the way our culture thinks. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, if somebody stops by, you have got to feed that person. That person needs some bread set before them. You know, they say that uh, people would often travel at night, especially there. It's, it's desert, it's hot. And so to escape the heat of the day, you would travel at night. And if a friend came to you on a journey, they would have, they'd really have no way of telling you that they were on the way, right? Like if you were going to show up at my house at midnight, maybe try giving me a call first or something, but there, there's no phone calls that can be made here. There's no way of letting somebody know that they're on the way. And so all of a sudden, somebody traveling at night would be at your door and they might arrive in the middle of the night. Now, my dad used to kind of do this to us. He, My dad was a little bit different, rolled by a, his own drum beat, if you say it that way. Um, he would, he would maybe tell us in the winter, um, Hey, I, I'm going to come by someday in the summer. I'm going to come by and see you in the summer. I'm going to come for a visit. I lived in, in Vernon, BC. He was in Regina. And so he w- we'd kind of have a conversation like that. And, okay. Well, yeah, sure. It sounds great, dad. And then he would call one day, like in the middle of the summer and he'd say, I'm in Calgary. I'll see you tomorrow morning. And we, Oh boy, dad's coming. So, um, we, we kind of know that experience in our house and whatever our plans were, we would, we would have to change those because dad's coming and he's going to probably stay for a week and we're going to have to host him. And so it was kind of something like that. There's no notice. If a friend came, it was a, it was a wonderful thing. Whatever your plans might have been, it was, it was awesome that this friend came. And when this friend came, your plans were changed 
and they had to eat. They've just been traveling all day, probably walking or riding a donkey or whatever. And so they absolutely need to eat. And if you don't give them food, you might as well be their enemy. You might as well be their enemy. They have to eat. But now get this. Uh Uh-oh. Do you feel the shock? Uh Uh-oh. The cupboards are bare. I, I, I was going to bake bread tomorrow morning. I thought we had this little couple crumbs for breakfast and I thought we were going to be fine, but oh no, we have nothing to set before this person. And this is really unbelievable now. This is, this is an emergency. This is an ancient Near Eastern friend's nightmare. And you might actually like have a nightmare like this if you grew up in this culture. You might wake up in the night thinking, oh no, I have nothing to set before a visitor. And then go, oh, okay, it was just a dream. There's nobody here. I can just go back to sleep. It's okay. And so that, that, but that's kind of the mindset that you would be in if you lived in this culture. Now you didn't need to serve them an amazing meal, but they, they needed some sustenance. They needed something. You had to set something before them and a few loaves of bread would be sufficient. You know, you, you, you can't give them a partial loaf though. You gotta give them a full loaf of bread and it has to be a new one. They're small loaves, but they, it has to be a new loaf. And the, the thing to do then in this situation is you go to another friend's house and you go to a friend's house who baked bread that day. And that other friend will understand because they've been in this same situation themselves before. And they have a double interest in the situation already. First of all, it's your friend and your friend is going to give you bread and your friend is going to help you out in an emergency and they're going to be happy to help. But then secondly, they also have an interest in keeping the honor of the village because it'd be a shame on the village to have a visitor who didn't have bread set before them. And so there's this double interest in your friend to help with the situation. They're going to care for your visitors like they're their visitors. And so that's what the situation calls for. A midnight visit to a friend. Now, one commentator kind of helped us to, I think, enter into this scenario from a North American perspective. Uh, David Garland compared this to a, a friend calling at night saying, my wife is in labor I need to get her to the hospital right away. Can, can I borrow your car? My car, my car won't start. Can I borrow your car to take my wife to the hospital? And he said that would kind of convey the urgency and the sense of duty that would be felt, right? If, if a friend knocked on your door at midnight and the, the, his wife was having a baby, oh boy, let's, you can have my car and, you know, whatever else you need and, and, uh, I'll be praying for you or whatever, right? That's, that's kind of the urgency and the duty. That, that would be felt in the ancient Near East in this situation. Now here's though where things get ridiculous. Suppose you were in this situation and your friend, your friend says in verse seven, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get, get up and give you anything. This is your friend's response. And I called this friend, if if you kind of have this thing here, I called this guy the baker. Your friend is going to be called the baker today because he's the one who baked bread the day before. 
Or even that day, I guess, if it's midnight. And so from inside, he answers and he says, don't bother me. The door's been shut. My children are in bed and and I cannot get up and give you anything. And so can you imagine this situation? This would be a shocking situation. Your friend says this to you. And I think we can imagine because um, of the differences in our culture, but but to the disciples, this would sound ludicrous. Like, like to us, we, you know, I could see one of my friends doing that or saying that, but, but to the disciples, that's just, don't be ridiculous, Jesus. That's, that would never happen. Even at midnight, friends don't say, don't bother me. That, that's not how friends speak to friends. If we go back to the wife in labor, how, how would you go about waking your neighbor friend to ask about borrowing their car. You know, if I was doing that, I'd probably knock on the door, "Uh, sorry to bother you, but my wife's in labor. But to to the listeners in Jesus's day, they they would not say that to a friend. You don't say sorry to bother you because that implies that there's actually some kind of distance in your relationship. You're, you're friends. You're not like strangers or anything. You're friends. You just, you just get right to the point with your friend. If you were talking to a friend, you say just, you say, friend, lend me three loaves. And there's no, there's no bother among friends. It's not a, it's not a bother at all. Um, you're my friend. And at midnight, you know, at midnight, you just get to the point. You, you know, you don't kind of beat around the bush. Oh, hey, uh, you know, like, How's it going? <laughs> you know, just friend, give me some loaves. I got this emergency situation. So apparently this friend lives in a typical uh, small house, your baker friend. He lives in a typical ancient Near Eastern small house where everything is in one room. There's one room, kitchen. That room is the kitchen. It's the bedroom. It's the master bedroom. It's the, it's the same room. It's also sometimes the stable where the animals are a little bit. Um, at night they would kind of move everything aside, put away the furniture, make beds of straw, and they would sleep all together in that one little room. And the friend implies that, that getting up and unlocking the door and giving the bread would wake up the children. Well, the funny thing is, is that the conversation would have probably already done just that. We're talking about a small little room and you've knocked on the door, you woke up your friend and, and, and so, You've, you've likely already woken up the children by just knocking on the door. <clears throat> and so that's got to be the lamest excuse ever. And I think that's the point here. This is the lamest excuse ever. My children are in bed and I can't open the door because then everyone's going to wake up. Um, Now remember, this whole thing here is a question from Jesus. And the question is, who from among you will have this kind of a situation happen? Who would go to a friend in this situation and have them respond with an excuse like that? And the form of the question is actually very specific in the original Greek. And it occurs about 10 times in the New Testament and always from the lips of Jesus, this, this specific construction that I translated in my translation, who from among you? And if we looked at all 10 of these who from among you statements, we would see that all of them are rhetorical questions that expect a, an emphatic negative answer. 
So this question is expecting an emphatic negative answer. That would never happen. That's kind of the idea. That is ridiculous. That would never happen. And so I just want to show you a few of these. I think we're mostly staying in the book of Luke. The first one's actually later on in our text in verse 11. And it says, now, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent? And it's literally who from among you being fathers, who from among you fathers? Is there a father among us who would give his son a snake instead of a fish? And of course, the answer would be no, like we're, we're righteous people and that's our son. Well, if you go to Luke 12 and 25, we see another one of these who from among you. Uh, Luke 12 and verse 25, the ESV translates it, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Which of you, who from among you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan, or some translations or some manuscripts have, or a cubit to his stature? Who can add 18 inches? Anyone here can grow 18 inches by worrying? Um, I don't think so, right? Anyone, uh, anyone here can add an hour to his life by worrying? Maybe take one away, but probably not add one to his life. Um, can't be done. That's the answer. No, can't do it. Impossible. Go to Luke 14 and verse uh, 28. Luke 14, 28. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first down, first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. So if you're going to build a tower, there's going to be some calculations. It's, it's literally there, who from among you wanting to build? And of course, the answer is no one. We would, we would see if we have enough bricks and if we could build this tower so it wouldn't happen. Again, Luke 15 and verse 4, it says, What man of you having a hundred sheep? If he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And so again, the question is something like this. Is there anyone, is there anyone here who wouldn't go after a lost sheep? If there's a shepherd of a hundred sheep, you know, or sorry, is there a shepherd of a hundred sheep who wouldn't go after a lost one until he finds it? And of course the, the standard practice is no Every shepherd would do the same. It's, it's standard practice. If a, a sheep gets lost, we're going to go find it. And so there's some other parallel passages. I, again, there's, there's about 10 of these in the New Testament. Some of them just ever so slightly constructed differently. But who from among you would ha- experience this situation? And the answer is always nobody. It would never happen. It's an emphatic negative. No way that, that's not, that's not going to ever happen. None of us would give our son a stone instead of bread or a snake instead of a fish. None of us can add a cubit to our height by worrying. None of us would be so foolish to build a tower without at least first sitting down and and calculating the cost if we have the resources to finish it. None of us would leave a lost sheep without going after it. And none of us would have a friend in the night asking for bread and, and we would go to this person and ask for bread 
Because an unexpected guest came and none of us would ever get such lame excuses. It would never happen. No friend of ours would ever do such a thing. No thing like that would ever be done. It is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And so verses 5 to 7, again, give us the supposition. And now in verse 8, Jesus makes an assertion. And the assertion is the second heading in our outline today. Number two, the assertion, and this is just in verse 8. So number two, the assertion, verse 8. Now, in case we didn't already know what was going to happen, Jesus declares it in verse 8, and he says, and I guess I'll read it from the ESV here. He says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, and I, 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 I feel like I'm not pronouncing that word right, but in, in, impudence, um, because of, and we'll get, we'll get to what that word means. Some of your translations probably say persistence there. Um, but because of this thing, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. He will rise and give him as much as he needs. The, the structure of verse 8 in Greek shows us that, that Jesus is assuming something is true for the sake of the argument. And so the idea here then is, let's assume that, that friendship is not enough to persuade your friend to get up But even though friendship isn't enough, even then he would get up and he would get up for another reason. Friendship would be enough, but even if it wasn't enough, he would still get up and give as much as he needs. And the reason that he would get up and give him as much as he needs is translated persistence in most English Bibles. The ESV has impudence. Um, this, This is not the same word that's normally translated persistence in our Bibles. This is a, a, a special word here. This is the word that, that, that's only used one time right here in the entire New Testament, and it's never used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this is a very, very rare word that we don't see very often. One time in the entire New Testament, and even never in the Old Testament Greek translation. And it's a word, it seems at least, it's a word that many of the earliest Christians didn't actually understand what it meant. Or perhaps they just had trouble applying it as they were thinking about prayer and how to approach God in prayer. Now, parables are difficult to interpret even at the best of times, but they're even harder if there's a key word that you don't understand or doesn't seem to fit. And this word is a very negative word here. And it, and it seems that, that it means this. It means a lack of sensibility or sensitivity to what is proper. It means carelessness, carelessness specifically about the good of others. It means shamelessness or impertinence is another English word, impudence. Um, it's the, the idea of ignoring convention. It, it's somebody who is is lacking a proper sense of shame. Remember, the ancient Near East is a a shame-based culture where there's this proper sense of shame that keeps you from doing something that would be wrong, right? There's there's this sense of shame that if I do this thing, even if I want to, it'd be shameful, and so I won't do it because it would shame me and it would shame our society. And so someone... (laughs) 
someone who has this character quality, this that's translated impudence. What did I translate it? I translated it shamelessness in, in verse 8. Shamelessness. And I gave you the Greek word there. Anadea. The, so somebody with this, this shamelessness doesn't have this, this social thing that keeps them from doing something that would, would be inappropriate. And they don't care then what's honorable. And because they don't care what's honorable, they do what's shameless. They behave shamelessly. Now, a, a scholar named Klein Snodgrass, he examined 258 times where this word was used in, in, in ancient times, kind of pre-New Testament, all the way to the 4th century. 258 times is, is probably all the times that this word is ever seen in, in anything that's existing today. And this is what Klein Snodgrass said. He said, quote, all and all the uses here, all the uses are demonstrably negative except where Christian writers have assigned a positive use independence on Luke 11, verse 8. So every time we see this word in the ancient Near East and in, in pre-New Testament all the way to the 4th century, it's always negative unless some Christian has understood this word from Luke eleven eight and and seen it or used it positively because they thought it was positive there. So if this word doesn't mean persistence, because it doesn't mean persistence, what, what, why do a lot of our English Bibles say persistence? And so we gotta just deal with this a little bit. What happened here? Well, very early on, Bible translators either didn't know what the word meant, or they, they understood somehow that this word in this context speaks about how we come to God in prayer. And they thought something like, and, and maybe they weren't interpreting the parable all the way, and so they thought something like, well, we can't come to prayer with a lack of sensitivity to what's proper, right? We don't, we don't go to God in prayer and, and behave shamelessly, and so, so they, they seem to have wanted to tra- change it into something good. They tried to make it fit their understanding, either because they didn't know what it was, or they thought it's gotta be something more positive. And they didn't have to look far in the context to maybe find something that could fit. And so in verse 9, where Jesus applies this parable and he says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. Those are all present tense uh, imperative verbs. And, and they have a continual sense about them. We're to continually, habitually go on asking and seeking and knocking. And that's where it seems that this idea of persistence came in. Now, what happened from there, and that, that's really probably the Latin Vulgate that I'm speaking about here is, is where this would have, this would have come into the Latin this way. And then from there, that, that translation, you know, other translations depend on previous translations. And so it kind of continued all the way through into our English Bibles. But persistence is not in view in verses five to eight. In fact, if you just think about the parable, think about it this way. The man only asks once. He says, friend, lend me three loaves. He, d- he doesn't need to ask again. He doesn't need to go on asking his friend for three loaves. The shamelessness about this whole thing, if you know, at least in my understanding is this. The shamelessness is that he woke his friend up at midnight. And so in one sense, this guy does have a proper sense for what's right because you have to feed your friend who arrived on a journey. But in waking his other friend at midnight, there's kind of a shamelessness, a lack of sensitivity. It's not 
It's not maybe proper, although in this context it, it, it is proper, but it's not typically proper to wake somebody up in the middle of the night and interrupt their kids and their family. And so, even if friendship wouldn't get your friend out of bed, the act of waking him up at midnight will ensure that he gets up and he will give you as much as you need. He, he's not likely to be in a mood for an argument if all you want is three loaves and he could just quickly give that to you and you're on your way and he can go back to bed. That's what your friend is going to do. And so even if friendship wasn't enough, the shameless act of waking him up at midnight, he's going to get up and he's going to give you as much as you need. As much as you need. And so if, if, if you, you know, this is kind of what the friend would say, if you are, are so set on this thing, if, if your desire is so strong for this thing that you would come and, and wake me up at midnight, then I will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus says that, I tell you, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. That's probably the New American Standard. Again, verse 8, even if he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his shamelessness, he will rise and give to him as many as he needs. So let me summarize the parable just one more time. It would be ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous to have a friend refuse a request for another friend with such silly excuses. The request is not a a huge request. It's just for three loaves. It could easily be paid back in the morning. It's not a selfish request. It's for another friend and the meeting, the, the needs of a visitor is everyone's responsibility anyways. It's a request, a request like this would never be refused, but even if mere friendship was insufficient a motive, the shamelessness of waking this man up at midnight would ensure the speedy giving of whatever is needed. And that's kind of the idea. Now in verse, I really, I gave you this translation because it's hard to follow who the he is in, it's he and him and he and him and it goes back and forth like that. It's a little clearer to see it in the original Greek, but um, that's why I put in square brackets who the he is in every case, because because it's it's hard to kind of follow that, especially if you're not sure who has this shamelessness and what it means. And so that's why I, Jesus, say to you, verse 8, Jesus says to the disciples, even if the baker will not rise to give the disciple because the baker is the disciple's friend, yet because of the disciple's shamelessness, because this guy came in the middle of the night, the baker is going to rise and give to the disciple who's asking as many as that disciple needs. So that's the parable itself. That's the assertion that Jesus makes. Now let's look, number three, at the application. We're going to kind of go to verses 9 to 13 now. So here we need to ask, what is this story intended to teach? And the fact that this is enclosed in a section on prayer makes it obvious that this parable is a parable on prayer. But again, we ask then, well, what is its intent? The request of the parable is bread, which was already mentioned in verse 3, where it says, give us each day our daily bread. Jesus taught us to pray about daily bread. 
Also, the, the verb give is repeated from the parable in verse 9. So in, in verse 9, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. In verse 11, if you will give him a snake or verse 12, give him a scorpion. Verse 13, give good gifts. Verse 13, give the Holy Spirit. And so this parable is tied to this idea of giving. The, the friend is asking, give me three loaves. And all through this thing on prayer, there's this, this asking, give me something. And it's asking the Lord for something in prayer. And so this parable is tied to the context that teaches prayer. Now in verse 9, where Jesus says, and I tell you, it's really the key to understanding this passage. And I tell you, this is the, the key to understanding what's happening here and what Jesus is, is trying to draw out of this parable. Our response to this parable, if we understand it right here then, is, is that we should ask and if we do ask, it will be given to us. And, be, and because of what this parable teaches, we should seek and we will find and knock and it will be opened to you. And the explanation of verse 9 then is found in verse 10. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks or to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so if you're seeing these verses, I, I want you to see them with new eyes today. Look at that again. It says, ask, ask. That's a command of us as Christians. Ask. And we should say then, well, why should we ask? What's going to happen if we ask? If we ask, it will be given to you. If you ask, it will be given to you, Jesus says. If you seek, you will find. You will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And you will not get a lame excuse. You will not get a, well, I can't because the door's already shut. And, and you know, you kind of see the, the idea here. God's not like that, that he's not going to give you what you ask for and what you seek and what you knock. Because everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now, when we kind of hear verses like that, it almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It's, it, it, it literally sounds too good to be true, but this is exactly what Jesus wants to teach us about prayer. Now, how does the Lord then teach us to pray? We're to come with an attitude of, of one who would wake up a friend at midnight asking for the simplest, easy to fulfill request to provide the need for another friend. That's how we're to ask. We're to come, just like the disciple in the parable would have come, we're to come expecting that our friend, our Father God, will give us the requests that we bring to Him. We're to come expecting that our request will be answered. And if we continue then into verses 11 to 13, we'll see that if sinful, evil, earthly fathers give good gifts to their children, then how much more will our perfect, righteous, heavenly father give good things to us? And we're not just God's friends, we're actually his family because we've been adopted into the family of God through our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so verses 5 to 8 function really the same way as verses 11 to 13 this is a how much more parable. And so if you would expect a sleepy friend to fulfill your basic request, how much more 
Should you expect God to answer your prayers? Now, we shouldn't try to draw more out of this than that. God is is not like a a grumpy, sleepy friend. We don't need to wake him up at midnight. But the the idea there is is focused on this expectation. We're not to make this, uh, you know, or to take this, that we should come with a lack of sensitivity, although we can come with boldness and ask God for whatever we need. If we have a legitimate request, we should expect God to answer it. If, that if we ask, we will receive. And if we seek, we will find. And if we knock, it will be opened. And so if it would be ridiculously impossible for a friend to refuse our request for bread in the night, then how much more is God answering our prayers ridiculously certain? Now we need to tie this not only with the, the, we've just kind of done the, the, the after context. We need to do the, the earlier context as well. And the prayer that Jesus is talking about, and, and again, this is not just like some kind of name it, claim it, whatever you want, whatever kind of worldly and idolatrous thing that you're asking for that God's going to give that. Don't, don't hear me saying that. But we need to tie this in with the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray in verses two to four. And that prayer, the way that Jesus taught, is that when we pray, we're to say, Father, hallowed be your name. And so this is a prayer, even before we get to this Father here and hallowed be your name, as this is a prayer for somebody who has God as their Father. This is a prayer for the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And over the the last few weeks in Matthew, we've looked at what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means that you're a follower of his, that you pattern your lifestyle after him, that you want to do the things that he did for the same purposes that he did to, to, that your goal is to see the, the world saved and to come to Christ and to live like the Lord Jesus Christ in their day to day life. That's kind of this idea. This is for a born again Christian believer. This is for somebody who's come to Christ, who's taken his yoke upon themselves and who's learning from him. A, a disciple is a learner, somebody who's following after the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, uh, this is a prayer for those who can legitimately call God their father. And what we're praying for at the beginning there is father, hallowed be your name. This is a prayer for those who want to see God glorified, to see his This is a a request that's going to honor God's name and show his glory to the world. It's a request here that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. He says, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves have forgiven everyone who's indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And so whatever prayer, whatever we're asking when, when we're going to expect an answer like this is things that align with God's glory, that aligns with his kingdom purposes, building the church and seeing people be made like Christ. It's for our daily needs, our basic daily needs that are, that, that our daily bread would be met. And it's even for the reality that God will forgive our sins when we fail to walk the way that we should as well as protection from sin and temptation from our enemy, the devil. 
And so when we pray prayers like that, God will answer our prayers. Prayers along these lines that we see in verses 2 to 4 by genuine believers will be answered. And to expect otherwise is really to dishonor God and to think that he's not true to his word. And so when we come and we ask things that are going to glorify God, that are in line with his kingdom purposes, that are, are for our daily needs and, and to keep us right spiritually with God through the forgiveness of our sins and to be kept away from temptation. When we ask these things, we should expect God to answer. And that really lines up with a, a verse I want to just show you in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14, another one of my favorite prayer passages. 1 John 5, 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, towards God. This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, in other words, if we've asked it according to his will, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And so this is the confidence that we are to have in prayer. And so I ask then just for us to apply this to ourselves. Is this your confidence? Is this the, is this the confidence that you have in prayer? When you pray and ask God for something along those lines, are you expecting that he will answer your prayer and glorify himself through you? When we ask anything, whatever it might be, and it aligns with God's revealed will and with his purposes and with his glory, we know that he will answer our prayers. And so answered prayer should be really an ever-increasing reality in our lives. We should be constantly growing in knowing and understanding God's will. And as we grow in our understanding of God and his will, we should see an increase in the answer to our prayers. And one of the greatest ministries that any one of us should have is our, our prayer life and seeing the answer to our prayers. In fact, that's why it's in First John in the first place is because one of the signs of a true believer is that they're going to see that God answers their prayers. And the reason that God answers their prayers is because their lives are being more and more aligned with God's will and with Jesus Christ. And the more we are like Christ and the more we understand God's will and purposes in the world, the more that our prayers are going to be transformed. And then the more our prayers are going to be answered for the glory of God. And so we should be constantly growing in faith as we see God working around us and answering our prayers. And so there should be times in our lives when we finish praying and we have the assurance, the absolute assurance that God will give us exactly what we asked because we know the request will glorify God, it will hallow his name, and that it is according to his will. And I want to just kind of say one more thing about that. One, one of the things that's just so important in our, our prayer life this way is that whatever we ask should be specific, clear requests of God so that we could actually know. Sometimes I think we pray and we walk away and if somebody said, well, what would the answer to that prayer look like? We might have no idea what in the world we even asked. But if we do know what we ask, if we do pray according to his will and ask specific things, 
Again, with the purpose of glorifying God, hallowing his name, seeing his kingdom purposes come about. If, if we ask in that way, we should have absolute assurance that God is going to give us exactly what we asked. Just like we sang about with the, I asked the Lord that I might grow. There's a, there's a prayer that you ask the Lord to grow. There's almost guaranteed trials. And through those trials, guess what? He's going to sanctify us, make us more like Christ. And so that's the kind of prayer. That's an example of the kind of prayer that God answers. And prayers like that are so sure that we could even say that the answer is ridiculously certain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this lesson from our Lord Jesus Christ about prayer. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to grow in our prayers. We ask that you would teach us to pray even along these lines, Father. And that we ask even that you would forgive us for all the times when we have such doubts, when we don't trust you, we don't believe you. But Father, we know you are a good God. And we know that you are a God that answers prayer, that you delight to answer our prayers and work through our prayers. And so even the prayer that we prayed this morning, Father, that this would be a church that that raises up a, a godly generation of people that are committed to Jesus Christ and living for him. We pray that you would do that in our midst. And we trust you to do that in our midst, Father, because you told us that we, if we ask such things, that we should expect you to answer. That you're not going to say, oh, that's not my will, that's not my purpose, I, I'm busy, I, I, I can't get up now and do that. We know, Father, you are a good God and that you will grant us these requests. And so we thank you, Father, for the way that you've answered prayer in our lives till now. We thank you that we'll grow in this because of even this time together. And we ask that you'd be glorified in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.